Hello and welcome to the ENJ podcast. My name is Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through the highlights of the February 2021 issue. Now today's primary survey comes from Ellen Weber. She's our senior editor on the journal and she's highlighted those papers which have really caught her eye of being a particular interest. But of course, as I always say, there's much more in the journal than I'll be talking about today and it's important or well, important i say it's important i think it's a really good thing for you to get through all of the stuff in the journal including the things like the best bets the image reviews the sonocache reviews etc there's a lot in there and i strongly recommend you have a look so what's been going on in february well we're in the middle of a global pandemic as you know and so we're we're fairly focused on covid19 but there's other stuff in there as i will talk about so let's go through and see what's caught ellen's eye going to kick off with the editor's choice which is around can we discharge the patient and We know that COVID-19 has brought lots of different challenges to the ED, but there are some things which are consistent, aren't they? The same things in emergency department, the common things that cause us problems, the common conundrums we face with all sorts of diagnoses is whether or not it's safe to send this person home. And with COVID-19, that's been really quite a challenge because we don't know a lot about this disease over the last year. In fact, there have been quite a number of studies now on the prediction of poor outcomes with COVID-19 but there's relatively few that tackle whether or not a patient who's likely got COVID-19 and we may not actually know whether they've got it or not but maybe they've got the symptoms that suggest it or maybe they had a PCR that's positive in community or something like that and they don't obviously qualify for admission so maybe they've not got an oxygen requirement um, but we still need to make a decision about whether or not they're safe to go home. So popular contender for this has been the idea of putting a SATS probe on somebody, exercising them or walking them up and down, 30-step tests, 40-step tests, and seeing if they desaturate. And I know for a fact that some people have been doing this as a decision tool about whether or not somebody can go home. But what's the evidence for it? So in this issue, we've got the results of a large multi-centre observational study. It's actually the PRIEST study. And Just as an aside, the pre-study is really interesting, fantastic study, I think run out of Sheffield with Steve Goodacre and colleagues. And this was set up originally for the next flu pandemic. It wasn't called pre-send, but there's a trial that's in hibernation to set up the next flu pandemic to look at triage tools. And of course, when coronavirus came on, they repurposed it and turned it into the pre-study. So this is really good, high quality evidence. And in this particular aspect, the pre-studies found that post-exertional saturation provides little diagnostic information for these otherwise well-appearing patients. And maybe maybe that's not surprising. Lots of us have used similar sorts of tests, this sort of ambulatory saturation testing for things like asthma, COPD or pneumonia. And, you know, even when we're, we're unsure of to as to whether we can discharge those groups of patients or the COVID-19 patients, it seems that these this test isn't actually a particularly good one, not a great predictor. So if you are using it, maybe you should look at the evidence. Um, and if you're not using it, maybe you should be a little bit cautious about adopting it. Just an aside, the pre-study is available on a preprint server now. So if you search for it, it's a really fantastic read. There's a lot more in there than just about ambulatory oxygenation and I strongly recommend it. And it's on a few blogs as well um, if you want to search for that. So sticking with the theme of COVID-19, you may have seen last year there was a lot of excitement about things like intubation boxes. So you have like a clear plastic box that you put over the head of the patient if you're going to intubate them to try and reduce aerolization and the risk of nosocomial infection between patients and to staff. Seems like a great idea. All great ideas are great until you get to the point where you might perhaps want to do 
the evidence to see whether it actually works. So even the EMJ, I mean, we did do sort of proof of concept papers around this um, on the articles and designs, although we did run quite a few caveats at the time. Anyway, since then, lots of people got them. I saw loads of stuff on social media about people adopting these sort of things. But in reality, people found them quite difficult to use. And instead, maybe there's been a shift. Well, it has been a shift to people improving their PPE as opposed to just relying on these things, these boxes. But better than that, as our and colleagues in this month's uh, EMJ have done quite a reassuring study in which 36 EM trainees in Malaysia simulated intubation using video laryngoscopy on airway mannequins. And they use that glow germ stuff which is, I think, the stuff that you put on when you're doing hand-washing testing. And it you, you put it on, see if you washed it off, and it glows under an ultraviolet light. It's quite cool for this sort of contamination-type study. They intubated the mannequins uh, with or without the aerosol box in place. And after doffing their PPE, although there were no significant differences between methods in the median number of contaminated areas, there was more contamination to forearms when they were using the aerosol box. So... That's sort of putting a little bit of caution on it, isn't it? So there's a good uh, summary of the evidence from Brewster and colleagues um, in a little commentary this month and suggests that really it's probably time that we put the boxes away. And uh, let's remember that we are, can't let our emotions override critical thinking when trying to protect ourselves and our patients and maybe do a little bit more focus on our PPE, which seems like a thing to do. More COVID next. So the next paper Alan's put out, pulled out is about point-of-care ultrasound. Now, I'm a bit of a fan of point-of-care ultrasound, so I have a massive conflict of interest here. I've published on it in terms of COVID, so I'm sceptically going to read Alan's comments. But she's right. From the outset of the pandemic, ultrasound has been offered as a way to potentially diagnose COVID-19 in the absence of reliable and quick diagnostic testing, although that might change soon. And... To date, and certainly the early papers, it was mostly about enthusiasm rather than evidence. So in this month's Reader's Choice article, we've got a study of the diagnostic characteristics of lung ultrasound in patients suspected of COVID-19 using either PCR or lung CT as the reference standard. Overall, sensitivity, I thought wasn't bad, 89%, and with a negative predictive value of 93%. But, well, some would argue that's a little less accurate than some had hoped for and perhaps less than some of the early papers had suggested. However, when confined to only those with prior cardiopulmonary disease, the negative predictive value was 100%, although the confidence intervals are a little wide on that, so always be suspicious of anything that's got 100% post-predictive value with wide confidence intervals. So, does it have a role? I think it does. Is the performance pretty good? Well, actually, a comparison to other diagnostic tests, yeah, it's pretty good. But, as with all things got to be careful with ultrasound it is only going to be a good tool in people who are trained in how to use it and understand the limitations of the technique so sticking with ultrasound but moving a little bit away from COVID-19 we can think about the use of pediatric emergency medicine ultrasound so technically or arguably there's quite a lot of advantages aren't there it's quick uh, you could do it at the bedside, even you know, with the child being held in the mother's arms. Uh, you get an answer right away and there's no radiation. So there's a lot going for it, theoretically, in the management of paediatric patients. So we've got a nice study by Snelling et al. from Australia looking at nurse practitioners who performed ultrasound on paediatric patients aged 4 to 16 with suspected non-angulated distal forearm fractures. And actually they found pretty good sensitivity and specificity to this. There's no difference in pain reported or duration of imaging, but parents, patients and the practitioners themselves all expressed a preference for ultrasound imaging, which is great. Um, I do also have used this for forearm fractures and it's great. You can see the fractures. It's really nice. 
But in the vast majority of cases, I still have to then send them on for an x-ray for lots of different reasons. So I think with this, it's going to be interesting to see whether we can get to a stage where ultrasound is the only investigation we do. And at that point, it may well become something which has a significant impact on processes and patients, etc. Then sticking with pediatrics, but moving away from ultrasound, Ellen's picked out a paper on pediatric sepsis. And I'm sure anybody in pediatrics or adults who started doing sepsis screening at the front door in triage will know that it's got terrible specificity and any of the tools out there to get a decent sensitivity that they're, they're hopelessly unspecific particularly in children who often come in with a fever and a bit of a tachycardia and a bit of a high respiratory rate because they've got an upper respiratory tract infection they're not wildly septic or about to die but we don't want to miss any patients so it's a tricky one. So what Gomez and colleagues have done is they've implemented a digital screening tool based on six variables in two large UK paediatric EDs. And what they did, instead of the tool automatically triggering an alert, so, so to draw bloods, give fluids, um, give antibiotics perhaps, which you know are all pretty traumatic for kids, what they did is they used the tool to alert a physician who then came in to determine whether sepsis was likely to be present. So big differences when you do this without the physicians the electronic tool had a positive predictive value of 2.94 percent which is rubbish 2.94 decimals in the right place and it still missed 12 children with physician involvement the positive predictive value went up to 46.4 not brilliant but not bad a hell of a lot better than 2.94 percent and you know still 20 kids missed on the initial screen although the vast majority of those were picked up um, later on physician evaluation so yeah, screening tools are good, but they are screening tools. They're not a reason to automatically do things. And I think we still need to put clinicians into these things. So screening tools alert. Then we have somebody sensible who goes along and makes the proper decision. And then finally this month, I'm really pleased to introduce the concept of the uh, COVID-19 top five. So we actually did this back in January, but we're sort of more formalizing it in February and explaining more about what it's about. Essentially, this came out of the Archem work that we did last year where we did rapid evidence-based updates on a very regular basis to try and get the information out to people as quickly and as easily as possible. There's so much evidence coming out that you really do need some way of you know, filtering the fire hose of stuff which is coming out. And team initially led in Manchester, but now rotating around the country through academic centres, is putting together these top five articles which hopefully will either change your practice or reinforce your practice. So we've managed to link the Archem the different various groups around the country and the EMJ to bring that to you. And we're really excited about it. I hope you find it useful and I hope it does make a difference to you and your patients. So with that, I will thank you for your attention. I will hope that things are okay where you are. I know it's tough out there. And I know that the beginning of 2021 is arguably going to be the hardest phase of the pandemic. But the end is hopefully in sight with vaccination, all the other things that are going on. So stay safe, read well and do your best. See you soon. Thank you.